Turn to Joshua chapter 17. We're going to continue our study in the book of Joshua. We have just a few more, and then we're going to wrap up the book of Joshua from here on out, or here on in, whatever, uh, to the end of Joshua. We are going to be skipping some chapters, and uh, that's my prerogative. Uh, There are certain verses, though, I will be highlighting. You'll see some of those verses highlighting, though we're going to focus on a section of Scripture. But um, I, I have to consider, at least for us as Powerline Community Church, the relevancy of the division of the lands and the listing literally of hundreds of names of cities. And, and so I am going to uh, just encourage you to read through that. Um, though understand this, that God had very specific boundaries for each of the tribes. And that is, that's very important. I'm going to touch on one little thing today. Um, though it is, I'm, it's going to be more incidental, but it is going to be, I believe, key. But we're, I'm going to be kind of cherry picking from here on out or here on in to the end of the book. And uh, my prayer is that the, the principles that we find in this book of Joshua would be very, very relevant to our everyday lives. Um, can I ask you how many of you grew up with a dad uh, that had no problem whatsoever putting you to work as a child? No problem putting yourself to work during the summertime. Oh, you're not going to school. Cool. I know exactly what you can do. <laughs> yeah, a lot of us. Um, Through no purpose of my own, as a child, I learned the principles of hard work. That was not my goal. They were, in, no, they were pounded into me by my dad. Um, he would have given Hitler a run for his money as a dictator. But regardless, uh, m- but my dad, uh, he understood hard work. And we didn't have a lot of money, so it wasn't like, hey, you just call someone to come and build this for you. You got to build it yourself. And I can remember, we would go out into our backyard as kids, and after a heavy rain, we could probably play in only a third to half of our backyard because water, uh, the, the person who lived in back of us, had a, their, their house was set just slightly on a hill. I mean, it wasn't like a huge backyard or anything. It, it wasn't. But they were resting on a hill, and so the, the water, that all the water on their property would flow down this little hill into our backyard, and because of the drainage in our backyard, it turned into a swamp. Well, my dad wanted us kids to play in the backyard rather than play in the house and destroy it. Good thought on his. Uh, he wanted to be able to put a garden in the back. And, and so with a swamp as a backyard after every heavy rainfall, he realized, well, this just isn't going to work. So he decided in this long process to take care of that problem. So one summer, we chopped down this huge willow tree that was in our backyard. It was, the roots were, you know, they lay on top of the the lawn. It was just very difficult to manage anyway. Um, But this was only part of a process. I didn't understand the complete process. All right, I just saw this one thing. We're going to chop down this cherry, excuse me, cherry, yeah, this willow tree, really? And, but it was huge. It was our, it was like our playhouse. We would climb this tree. It was awesome. We loved it. It did stand in the way of our wiffle ball field. I, yeah, so I was happy for it to go in that sense. 
but we took it down. And when you take a tree down, you don't just cut it off, okay? You got to cut the branches off. Then you got to cut the trunk in sections. And then you have to pull the stump up. And that is absolutely, it's a nightmare. It's brutal. Oh, my goodness. And we didn't have horses. We didn't have a truck. It was manpower, okay, or boy power, whatever. And we, we got in there. Oh, man, we got in there. The next summer, my dad thought, you know what, guys, we're, we're, we got a goal here. And so we're going to transform our lawn instead of uh, just leaving the, the lawn as it is. And we're going to take all of these pretty yellow flowers that up north they call dandelions. And we're going to get rid of all of this garden in our backyard of yellow flowers. And we're going to resod. Now, here's what he really meant. We're going to pull up all of the sod that's in the front and backyard, all of it. We're not going to just rototill it in. I think he was afraid of weed seeds getting down. We're going to pull it all up, and then he was going to re, he's going to put a dump truck of soil in the back, and he was going to grade it. So that way, when the water comes down from the center of our yard, it would, it would grade. And so this is what my dad decided to do. And we planted grass seed, long process, took us half or more of the summer. The next summer, he said, no, we are still not done, but we're coming down the home stretch. One last thing that we got to do, and that summer we put in what's called a French drain. And you dig down about a foot, it's about a foot wide, it borders your entire property, and you put, I, I, it's some mixture of, I think it's heavy rocks down first, and then this layer of some sort of black material, um, and then the, the smaller stones on top, and I, I can't remember exactly how it went, and then it would come out into our alley, and then there was, it would drain into a pipe underground out to the, the street. And so now when, our, when it would rain, all of that water would come down into our backyard and drain into this French drain, and it wouldn't flood our yard. And it actually worked. It actually worked. But I had absolutely no clue when I was three years before that tearing down this willow tree, what a huge monumental task, what lay in store for me. And so I want to ask you, have you ever encountered a problem and you thought it was just this real simple little problem and when you got into it, oh my goodness, it was huge. All right. And, and we encounter problems like this. And honestly, many problems that we encounter in our lives are like this. We think it's small. When we get into it, it's huge. Now, Especially if you have a business, you never want to encounter that because that means many times more work. You've already set your price and now you're in trouble. So you want to be a good estimator. But I want us to consider that God wants to instill certain uh, spiritual character qualities in us so that when we are facing these problems, and many of these problems are going to stand in the way of you actually receiving all the inheritance that God has for you. And so it's crucial that we, we, we glean principles from God's word so that we can truly walk in all of the inheritance that God has for us. As we move into our promised land or our inheritance and we are applying these principles of Joshua, we will encounter problems. Just like the giants that we spoke of last week, we're going to realize that there are more problems that they encounter 
And our question is, how did they respond? How should we respond learning from them? Now, there's a lot that we could look at just as far as application goes. And as I've been praying through this with the upcoming election, I felt as if what God was wanting me specifically to focus on was revival in America. And I'm not going to go too deep with regard to revival, but I want us to see how these principles will apply to this situation of of seeing God by his spirit move in our land and that there is revival in America. America was founded on biblical principles, regardless of what the sages or supposed sages of our day would like us to believe. They were founded on biblical principles. They turned to John Locke's treatise, first and second treatise of government, in which he quotes 1,500 scripture verses. That, that is a lot of scripture verses, church. And John Locke sought to uh, answer some of these questions just with regard to what, what is godly or biblical government supposed to look like? And our founding fathers relied heavily on resources like this, common law, um, from England and, and, and such, and, and of course, scripture, that most of the founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence were graduates from Christian universities and seminaries. They were rooted in scripture and sought to apply them. And I am not by any means saying that all of them were truly born-again Christians. I'm not saying that. But if we are going to see revival come to America, we need to be equipped with the proper proper mentality because there is so much work that needs to be done in America. And we have got to see the power of God in our day. And I have just a few things to say just with regard to the upcoming election that I'm going to get to, what maybe some of that mentality needs to be. So are you there with me in Joshua chapter 17? Starting with verse 12, I'm going to read through verse 18, and it says, Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns. And it just listed their inheritance, and in verse 11, it lists several cities, and it's saying with regard to those cities, those towns, they couldn't, they couldn't occupy them. Why? Because the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. The people of Joshua said to, excuse me, the people of Joseph, which would be Manasseh and Ephraim, those were Joseph's two sons. Those are the two tribes in question here. They then, the people of Joseph, come to Joshua. Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for our inheritance? We're a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and Rephaites. Now remember, Rephaites were giants. The people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots both those in Bethshan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it 
and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. <clears throat> I think we can see pretty readily here the three problems that they encounter. Number one, the tenacity, the determination of the Canaanites to remain in the land and not give up. Number two, the fact that much of their land was forested and was not a welcoming place or a habitable place to build towns, to build, to establish farmland. And so they felt limited. And then thirdly, if they weren't going to go into the hill country and they went down into the plains, in the plains you encounter the iron chariots and those people were strong and it was as if it was one problem after another. We can't inherit the land because of this. He gives it a response. Then we can't inherit the land because of this. And it's one excuse after another. And isn't it true that when, when we feel that God is wanting us and calling us to do something, when we begin to encounter problems, we give excuses. Well, it's no different. The Ephraimites, the Manassites, they did the very same thing. I do want to draw your attention to one particular tribe that encountered uh, problems and they took the wrong route. And in verse, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 47, after the first six verses, the allotment for Dan is listed. It says this about the tribe of Dan, but the Danites had difficulty. Are you there with me in chapter 19, verse 47? But the Danites had difficulty taking possession of their territory, so they went up and attacked Leshem, took it, put it to the sword, and occupied it. They settled in Leshem and named it Dan after their forefather. Now, on the surface, that looks very innocent. They went and they, they took Leshem, okay, and they, they actually changed the name to the, the name Dan. Well, here's the problem with this. That was not in their territory at all. They actually had to go far north into, uh, I believe it's Naphtali's territory, furthest north. Dan would be considered one of the furthest north cities of the, the land of Canaan that was given to Israel. They, if you were to look in a map in the back of your Bibles and you were to see Dan sitting right there on top of the tribe of Judah next to Benjamin, it's, it's, it's a, a decent place but it's very far south. They migrated all the way up into the northern portion and took a town that belonged to another tribe. Why? Because they gave up. You know, that, I, I suppose that would be tantamount to us having struggles in our marriage, and this is very common in Jesus' church today, and we're encountering problems, and we just can't seem to fix it, so instead we choose to get a divorce and marry someone else. And Jesus says, you cannot do that. Don't do that. You're going to short circuit my blessings that I want to give to you. And I believe that God did this with the tribe of Dan. They gave up. And what we find is through, and we see this especially in Judges 1, 2, and 3. We're not going to look at that. But in those three chapters, we find many of the tribes giving up. They encountered problem after problem after problem. 
They may have knocked down the willow tree, but now you're talking about leveling the land and pulling up the sod and laying new sod, and now you're talking about putting down a French train. What? Now, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. So my parents seriously considered uh, the possibility of moving, but it was not a viable possibility because my dad was a 12th grade English teacher and made very little. We're not going to sell our house and move into another place. We're going to make do with what we have. And God has given us certain gifts, and he is calling his body together. And part of this promised land, and and remember, there's numerous applications to the concept of the promised land in Joshua. My focus is America today, and what are we going to do about it? Because the truth is, America is on this downward spiral into sin, and our goal is to, by God's grace, rescue America. And it just seems like it's oil through the fingers. It seems like as hard as we jump into rescue, more are being lost. And and we're just crying out, God, what can we do? And his answer is not move to Canada. All right, it is not. Just if you were wondering, I don't believe God is saying to anyone here, move to Canada. I don't blame you if you desire that. What, move to Canada? Yeah, right, good luck on that. Are you tired of the socialism coming into America? It's worse up there. So I'm just saying, God has called us to throw our lot into America. This is where we are. He's not asking that we move, and he is saying, I want you to give your life to see this country brought back to me. We cannot give up like the Danites did. And so the question then is, okay, what do we do? The first problem that they encounter or the issue is the issue with the, the Canaanites. And there's such a determination for these people to stay there. And, and I'll be honest, if I were in their shoes or sandals or whatever they wore, I would, I mean, that's my homeland. But God said, in essence, for 430 years, they had the opportunity to repent. You remember Melchizedek. Melchizedek lived during the time of Abraham and Sodom and God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it wasn't just Abraham. There were others, even in the land of Canaan, in which there was a witness to the one true God. But by the time the Israelites get there 430 years later, it's completely gone. Not only is it completely gone, but this, the culture has been so steeped in sin and has become so rebellious against the one true creator and worshiping other gods and sacrificing their children in the fire that God says, I I need to bring judgment and I need to use my people Israel to do that. So you understand this. But as they're trying to take the land from the Canaanites, and if you would, again, turn in the back of your, your Bibles, if you have a map of Israel during the time of the conquest, and especially if I want you to look for a map that shows the allotment of the tribes. I want you to look at how large Manasseh is. Understand that half the tribe of Manasseh, and Manasseh was about the second largest tribe. I'm saying about because we only know Uh, the number of fighting men, and the number of fighting men would be somewhat uh, comparable to the number of, or or, or percentage-wise, comparable to their population. So if Judah's the largest, 
has the most fighting men. They're probably the largest population. So they're probably the second largest uh, tribe. But look at how much land they have to the east of the Jordan and then how much land they have to the west of the Jordan. And that what was their complaint? It's not enough. And why? Because of all of these factors that play into it. Now, as we focus now on this first one, the Canaanites uh, who were living in much of the land that had, to a degree, the land had been conquered, but there were still many, many pockets of resistance in the tribes, in every single tribe. And so as they're facing these Canaanites, they're difficult to get rid of them. I want to now segue into a New Testament application so follow me with this. Uh, the theology class this past Wednesday looked at some, some of these verses, and I want us to recognize that when we are seeking to take the land, and by take the land, I mean to proclaim the gospel so that people in America respond to the gospel, that right, because scripture says righteousness exalts a nation. God honors a righteous nation. Okay, And we can seek to make this nation righteous in one of two ways. We can either elect someone who is righteous and hope that that righteousness trickles down to the rest of the people. Or we can see a grassroots revival in which the people in America are changed and that in itself will change the people that are elected into office who will then put righteous laws in the books, and lead America righteously. Now, I'm in favor of the second, but I understand the implications of the first, and so every election, people, is an important election. But understand also that as we are seeking to change the spiritual landscape of America, and be able to share with them the hope of Jesus Christ and this life that when it's ignited in our hearts radically changes the way we live, the way we view our world, with what many people call a Christian worldview. And when we start seeing things through God's views, through, through the, the view of his word, it, we begin to act differently. We begin to vote differently. We begin to live life differently and raise our families differently and operate businesses differently. And, and every aspect of our life is impacted by the gospel that has changed us and reoriented the way we think and the way we speak and the way we act and everything about us. But here is a reality check, and, and this reality check for many of us discourages us in our evangelistic efforts. But in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, you can turn there if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we need to get a realistic picture of what our world is like, and here is the truth that Paul shares with Timothy. Because Timothy is just like us. He, he's wanting to see these cities uh, who, who, are, who have been steeped in paganism. He wants to see God totally change them. And he says, you know what? You're going to have people who will oppose the, the truths of the gospel. But here's a reality check. Those who oppose him, 
uh, he must, referring to the servant of God, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them, those who oppose him, grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses. And the Greek word for come to their senses is this idea of returning to sobriety. Uh, waking up from a bad dream. Uh, coming to our senses just like the, the prodigal son when he, when he has lost everything and he's squandered his wealth and he's now considering as he's working for a pig farmer, he's contemplating the value of, cons- of filling his belly with the pig swill that he's feeding the pigs. And he gets this reality check and he says, what am I doing? I would be better off as a servant in my father's home. Why don't I just go back and ask if I can be a servant in his house? I wouldn't even need to be a son. I've, I've taken your wealth and I've wasted it. So I'll just come back as a servant. Well, you know the rest of the story. He comes to his senses. He returns to sobriety. He says, wait a minute. And we need to realize that those who are caught up and, and this was us at one time, church. It was us. This is part of our testimony. We needed to come to our senses. We needed to escape from the trap of the devil who had taken us captive to do Satan's will. We are, we were pawns in the hands of Satan. You try telling that to someone who doesn't know Christ. We'll have nothing to do with that. What do you mean I'm controlled by the devil? Yeah, right. Well, guess what? I was in your place. I know what that rebellion is like. I remember sitting down with my brother. I'd been to church all of my life. He's sharing the gospel with me. And there was, I mean, I'd been to church all my life. I read the Bible when I played sick. I did that a lot Sunday mornings. When I played sick and stayed home, my mom would stay home with me and she'd read the Bible to me. And when this would, there was just like this resistance in my heart. I kept pushing it away. I'm thinking to my brother, I'm thinking about my brother as he's talking to me. Come on, Dan, it's Friday. It's not even Sunday yet. Come on, give me a break. And there was just this resistance in my heart. And yet when I look at scripture, I have to confess no wonder. I was in Satan's trap. I was, I, I could not understand what he was, he was getting at because it, there was something in me, this, this desire to want to push truth away from me. I did not truly want it. And as you turn now with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we find out a little bit why. Because in verse 6, excuse me, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, the God of this age who is Satan, we just read about him, who entraps us, ensnares us. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. When I was 14, my mind was blinded. My eyes were blinded. I could not understand. There was, I was caught up in this rebellion. And, and I'll be honest with you, if you told me, if my brother told me, you know what, Mike, you're just caught up in rebellion, I would laugh at him. And I would say, yeah, well, look at all the good things that I do. And I look at, look at all the bad things that I don't do. But my heart was still in rebellion against God. My eyes, my mind was blinded. And I was not truly understanding the truth, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, just one more scripture passage, but Ephesians chapter 4, it starts getting at the, the, the very reason. You know it, and instead of reading it because of our time here, I'm just going to mention it. But he's saying that the, the, the pagans, the reason why that they're, they're, they're thinking is futile is because there is no life in them. There, there's only ignorance. They don't understand the truth. They, they don't get it. And the result of it is that they, their, their hearts have been hardened. And that's why there's ignorance. That's why there's no life there. That's why when I was 14, immediately uh, there was just this resistance to hearing about the gospel. Really? Friday? Please. This is what we are up against in the world this is what we were like, church, before we came to Christ and he turned the light on and he broke our heart. He changed our heart. And, and yes, our heart is in this process of being changed. No one here sitting in this room has arrived yet. The only one who has truly arrived, and he was always there, was Jesus himself, sinless from birth. And, and he understood, but we're in process. The world is held captive. By the enemy, America has been in the grips of sin and Satan's control. It says that we were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when we go door to door, when you're looking at talking with your co-workers, and it's just foul language that comes out of their mouth, and, and it, they, they, they hold to political views that just seem so ungodly, and, and they, their, their children are in total rebellion, and their lifestyles, they're married, and yet they brag about their partying and sleeping around on Friday nights, and you just wonder, when you share the gospel with them, is there ever going to come a time in which that gospel falls on a heart that's receptive? Will there ever be any change? And when we're going door to door and we're, we're appealing to them, realize that, that there, there are many of their minds, and I don't know who's truly born again out there and who's not, but as we're talking with, many, with people and, and they are truly lost, they're truly lost for a reason. And we were a part of that. We're a part of that dominion of darkness. And it's easy for us to get discouraged as we seek to evangelize, as we seek to make Christ known. It's like the Canaanites who absolutely refused to, to give up and surrender and capitulate and yield their land to the Israelites. And I'm going to suggest to us that this, in our day, this requires the most, the greatest amount of faith and determination. Jesus in Luke 18 gives a parable of a woman going to a, an ungodly judge over and over and over again. And being an evil judge, he gets wearied by her constant coming to him and nagging. And he finally says, okay. I'll take care of this problem for you. And, and, and Jesus says, you know what? Your heavenly father is a righteous, godly judge. He's not wicked like this judge. 
Will he not hear your prayers and eagerly want to answer them all the more? But yet, he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And I want to ask you, the people that you have been reaching out to in your marketplace and, and where you're working, your neighbors, and you're trying to love on them and you're praying for them, I'm going to encourage you, where's your heart? And if you're becoming weary, and that's happened with me, there's, there can be this weariness that sets in. Just as the first year, yeah, we took down that willow tree and the next year we're, we're going to lay noose. We're going to do what, Dad? Really? And then the next year, the French tree, this is wearying. And Jesus says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Will I find a people who are on their knees and really crying out to me? Am I going to find a people who absolutely refuse to give up? Who in the face of trial and persecution, just like in the early church, and read through the book of Acts, they, they rejoiced when they were persecuted. They welcomed it with open arms. They came back from their weapons and, and they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be, to be persecuted and to suffer for Christ who experienced the ultimate suffering on the cross. And in that little way, they managed to experience that very same type of suffering and they identified with him and Christ gave up himself and can we not give up ourselves for this cause? as wearying as it may seem at times. When Jesus returns, will he find faith? My prayer is that when Jesus returns, to speak metaphorically as, or allegorically, my prayer is that he won't find Canaanites in the land because the church will have prayed them in, so to speak. That we, Jesus' church, will see those who are in rebellion just like we were, have fallen in love with Christ. That the blind, that the blinders that the enemy has over their eyes would be removed. That the heart that is hardened and obstinate and resistant as I was before I came to Christ, that resistance would be gone. And he will find changed lives. That's what I'm praying that America will be like when Jesus comes back. But we have a long way to go. The second thing that we need to see here in chapter 17 is that <clears throat> if you were to look on that map, Manasseh, and again, we're only looking at half the tribe of Manasseh. It was the second largest. I think it had something like 64,000, half of that, 32,000. So it would technically be considered a small tribe on the west side of the Jordan, but look at how much land they were given. They were given the second most on the east side of the Jordan. Judah probably given the most, Manasseh the second. So it was ample land, but the problem was there were so many trees. There were forests as far as the eye could see. And the, the, the place that was actually habitable that you could build a house and, and have a farm, it was small. And so... They complained and they said, well, you need to give us more land, more land that is that's habitable. And so Joshua said, I'm sorry, nothing doing. We're not going to do that. I need you 
to cut down these trees. Now understand what Joshua is asking them. He is asking them, and if you've ever seen this happen, but you have to cut the tree down, just like we did with our willow tree. You have to cut it in parts so that you can remove it, and then you have to pull the stump out. If you don't remove the stump, it's not habitable, farmable land. You have to pull the stumps up. This is long, hard work. I do not, or yeah, I do not envy them in any way. You know, if you were to turn and do that with me, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, God foresees this, these struggles that they were going to have, this long, arduous process. And church, I'm going to tell you this, that seeing America be brought to revival is going to be long and arduous. And it will, it will feel like it is breaking our back and it feels like we're being stretched beyond limit as we are praying and loving and sharing Christ and being willing to be persecuted and stand up for what's right and press in to share Christ with others and it's going to seem so long and hard we will be tempted to give up but God has planted you in a certain business. He's planted you on a certain college campus. He's planted you in a certain neighborhood. And he's planted this church amongst certain neighborhoods. Why? Because he wants us to reach them. And so I'm going to challenge us. If you're feeling weary, then just realize, even in this situation, God understands what he is asking of you. And if you were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, you can see what Moses foresaw. And he says there in verse 22, he says, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. How, church? Little by little. I want you to underline that in your Bibles. Little by little. You know what? Do you want to see your marriage rescued? Many people are of the impression, well, I just need to go to Pastor Mike and he'll take care of all the problems for us. You know what? I hope I can help, but here's a reality check for you. I cannot change your heart. Wait, wait, wait a second, Pastor Mike. I'm not asking that you change my heart. I'm asking that you change my spouse's heart, right? Come on, let's be real here. I just need you to change his heart or her heart. And if you can just change their heart, we'll be good. I'm gonna tell you, you got it all wrong. You have it backwards because God is going to want me to be able to share some truth so that your heart will change. Did I just step on your toes? That's a reality check. And if we want to see our families brought in line with the word of God, if we're talking about reaching the nation and we have yet to reach our families, God is wanting us to, to pray for and, and see God change our marriages and change our family dynamics. And it has got to start with you. You. Not your spouse. You. It's going to be a process. Little by little, he says. In fact, he says, you will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once. 
I'm not even going to allow you to eliminate these Canaanites all at once. I'm not even going to allow you to create some invention that will wipe out the entire forest and uproot the stumps all at once. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. This isn't the sermon you wanted to hear this morning, is it? But life is hard, church, and it requires tenacity and grit and stamina and faith. And I am in it for the long haul. I am in seeing revival in America. I'm in it for the long haul, and I'm not moving to Canada, okay? And this is how we need to pray. This is how we need to to act. We need to see godly men rise up in America so that they can assume office. Because right now, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. That's point number three. Okay. Right now. Yeah. So I didn't finish the verse. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. And this has more application, of course, than what I am focusing on here. This is implications for the call of God on your life. And, and I don't believe that there's just a call yet. You may feel sitting here that God has called you to be a pastor. And if that's the case, man, I hope that God just uses you powerfully in this nation, that God has called you to this nation for such a time as this. But I also want to tell you that is, that is my heart, but it's going to, it's a process. You're not going to stand up in front of a pulpit with thousands and they're all going to fall down in repentance. God has, is, is going to form something in you and it is a process. For elders, they challenged in 1 Timothy 3, he says that you're not supposed to elect neophytes. You know what a neophyte is. is uh, uh, someone who's young. I, I don't want you to just have someone lead your congregation or help lead your congregation who is a new convert. They'll be filled with pride and fall into the same trap that the devil did. God is going to birth this call. Whatever this call or callings are in your life, little by little. He will open doors of opportunity here and there, but only in the right timing. And I'll confess there are times in which I am knocking on a door and knocking on a door and knocking on a door and knocking on a door. And God, when is this door going to open? I'm trying to be faithful. And God has at times, at times said, Mike, sometimes he said this, that's not the door for you to open. But that's for someone else. Or I am needing you to grow more in this area before I can let you open that door. Some of us, we want promotion in our business or even in the kingdom like right now, yesterday. And God is saying, no, I'm sorry. You can have this once you clear the land. Every tree in that five-acre lot over there, they all have to come down. The stump's pulled up. And God is wanting to do a deep work in his people. And if you look around at America, we don't have to look too far to see, okay, I'm referring to us, church, before we start seeing maybe some of the cause for the sin in America and the waywardness. And we ourselves, is it not true? We ourselves can be so easily led astray. We're not fixing our homes. 
You're not fixing our lives. You're not quick to repent. Many times we're not teachable. We want to give up. Many of us, let's, we may not have been born in a, a, a rich family, but you look, comparatively speaking, to a third person lived growing up in a third world country, we were born with a silver spoon in our mouth or a gold one. We truly have so much, and that has worked against us at times. We want things easy. And when it comes to really hard work, and some of you know what I'm talking about, But if we're going to see a different America, it is going to require a lot of hard work. It will not happen overnight. It will happen little by little. But I believe that for the face of America to change to such a degree that America truly honors God, it's got to be from the grassroots up. All of America has to change. Now, I understand. And I'm going to use this to segue into the last point. I understand that kings like Hezekiah, there was idolatry in the land. He assumed the throne. He got rid of the idols, and that impacted the nation of, of Israel. Well, technically the nation of Judah, because Israel was still in rebellion against God. For... David, to assume the throne, he helped set standards of righteousness. But I have to pause and reflect, how is it that Judah was so quickly led astray when Hezekiah died? Or when Josiah, the next godly king, assumed the throne? How is it? Now, I, I'm totally in favor of us enacting righteous laws, but that those righteous laws will not change hearts. It will enable us to have less sin, granted, perhaps. It will enable us greater freedom to worship. It will allow much good, but it will not change the heart. And so as we now look at this last item here, it says that, Another reason why we cannot take the land is because there's so many chariots. The enemy has chariots. And I want you to, to consider this, the advantage that chariots have. They can move quickly, especially when drawn by horses, which is probably the only way that you draw a chariot, right? But as you're riding in the chariot, you move quickly, you can maneuver easily, and a chariot is, is a great thing to have on a battlefield. As long as it's, it's level, it's a great thing to have. But have you considered why in our previous lesson back here in chapter 11, that it says when they fought against all of those northern tribes, excuse me, all of those northern kings and nations, that when they captured them, it says in chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said this to Joshua, okay? It wasn't Joshua's brilliant idea, because I, I can only imagine that Joshua had a problem with this, as I would have. But nevertheless, the Lord says to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to you, to Israel slain. So far, so good. You are to hamstring their horses and turn and burn their chariots. Wait a second, God. 
Don't you realize that if we capture their horses and their chariots, we'll have a better advantage? We, we just If we had more chariots, if we had more horses, we'd be able to take care of these people. We'd be able to fight more on level ground, so to speak. You know, weaponry for weaponry, matched. It would be more of a fair fight. But God says, nope, I want you to burn them. I want you to get rid of the horses. Why would God have to, if you look at David and other Solomon, they had many horses and many chariots. Psalm 20, I believe, gives us an answer to this. And God wanted it specifically applied in this situation. And in chapter 20, let me get the right verse here. Verse 7, he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Psalm 118, let me piggyback on that verse. In Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, it says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, or may I add also presidents. Now, please don't misunderstand me as I now segue into this last point and its application. I am in favor of us electing a godly person as our president. I feel that that is what America needs. Can we just be honest with one another? Neither of the candidates fit nicely into either of those packages of a godly man or godly woman. But I don't trust in princes, and I don't trust in chariots, and I don't trust in man, and I don't trust in horses. Jesus himself did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in their hearts. I do not expect the next president of the United States to completely change America for the good. I do want a godly man in there as president. When Mike Huckabee, honestly, when he decided to run, I really hoped he would get elected. But America was not ready to have an ex-pastor be their president because they were still caught in this misunderstanding of what separation of church and state was. They still think, and to this day, they still think that that means that wall of separation that Jefferson talked about meant the separation of morality and, and government, which absolutely is not what he meant. And so Jefferson is quoted constantly about this wall of separation, and it's totally misunderstood in America today. That we can't enact righteous laws. That's imposing your religion, and we're supposed to not have any face of any particular religion in America. Well, that is not what that means at all. If you don't choose to legislate moral laws, then guess what you do legislate? immoral laws. It's one or the other. There is no such thing as a neutral law. It impacts people either for the good or the bad. It is either the heart of God or it is not. Forget about this concept of neutrality. Our present president has sought to clear the the playing field and enact laws that are not righteous. 
I would like to have a president that would enact righteous laws. But we are facing two presidents that maybe you disagree with me, but I would not put in either category of, of in, in the category of a righteous man or a righteous woman. And so, but understand, my I, I, I do not trust in man or chariots. And for the Israelites, he went so far as to say, I'm not even going to let you have chariots because I want you to fully trust in me. I want you to see that no matter how hard it is, no matter how big the giants are or how strong they are or what type of weaponry they have, it does not matter to me because I am fully able to level the playing field and destroy the enemy. Can you trust me? And so I don't trust change from the top down. I trust in change from the grassroots, from the everyday person up. And when America is sufficiently changed and brought into revival, it is then that we will start placing godly men and women into office. But here is what I do think is significant. So I am not going to look at their character, though I think character is absolutely important. I don't know Donald Trump, by the way, well enough to say, has he truly been born again? I believe he says he has. I don't know him. Character is very important. So I am left to look at what they represent and what we call a political platform, the Democratic platform and the Republican platform. And I will take my liber liberties here because there are certain platforms that is our goals as a party. And that's what you formulate when you come together in your national convention. And here is a truth. We have never to this date seen a more ungodly platform than the Democratic platform. If that offends you, I'm sorry. I would love to, maybe not today because I have to leave shortly after, but I would love to discuss with you why I believe that. Here's just a few reasons. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that murder is wrong. Somehow we have been duped into believing that if a child is inside a mother, it is her body and she can do whatever she wants. But if the child is outside her body, she's now obligated and responsible. And should she neglect that child, child she will be it will be considered murder. But if I take the, the, the life of the child while, she, while the baby is still in the womb, it's not murder. And my question is, do you really believe that the responsibility a mother has and the encumbrance a child has on the mother is more significant when it's in her tummy than when it's outside? How many of you have ever, being moms, have ever had a little one? How much responsibility and sleepless nights? I mean, granted, maybe the last month of your pregnancy was a little hard to sleep. Maybe that's preparation for the whole next year for you, getting very little sleep. Okay, there's more responsibility. If we're going to say abortion is okay because it's the woman's body, how much more is it her body and responsibility and hard work and, and it's all being, well, I shouldn't say all, but so much being placed on her, the dads, you know, you do great jobs, dads in here in helping take care of the kids, but how much more responsibility now that the child is born? 
And yet we are so confused, we think it's okay to take that life of a, a human being, a baby human, while it's in the mother's womb. It's okay to murder it there, but once it's born, all the laws in the books would say, you got to really protect it. Amen to that. Amen to that. But how about before the child is born? Somehow our thinking has become so polluted that it, what Ephesians, I didn't read that passage, the futility of their thinking due to the hardness of their hearts, the futility of their thinking astounds me. Yet the democratic platform embraces abortion on demand and supports Planned Parenthood and apparently the obvious funding given to Planned Parenthood to sell baby parts. Do I need to go any further in that? And this is disgusting in the eyes of God. And we don't just tolerate it, church. The, the voice of the church in America is sufficiently strong to put this out. And yet, I don't know if you have done a survey in Jesus's church. They are not by any means fully aboard with being pro-life. There are many who are pro-death, pro-murder, pro-abortion. They do desire to fund Planned Parenthood. So I was reading in the Orlando Sentinel, and they were talking about the differences in, between Hillary Clinton and the Democratic platform and the Republican platform on this issue, I was amazed at what they chose to focus on concerning Planned Parenthood. They tried to find any positive that they possibly could and list it rather than the multiple, the lengthy list of negatives. After all, it's a woman's body, right? The Democratic platform has chosen to redefine marriage they have chosen to express themselves and endow themselves with the power and the authority of God himself. And they have chosen marriage can be between two women and two men. And God has specifically made it clear, absolutely not. And there are many reasons for this, scripturally. And yet, we couch it in terms such as, well, it's loving to do that. We want to ensure liberties. And God says, in so many words, we will always seek to excuse our evil behavior. Tag teaming with that, the religious freedom on marriage, and we are locking up business owners because they have chosen out of their personal convictions not to make a wedding cake for a couple that wants to get married and have at the top of that cake two women or two men. And they said, the business owners, look, there are plenty of businesses that will do this for you. Out of my convictions, I can't do that. And yet these couples repeatedly have pressed and taken them to court and these, these businesses under the Obama administration have been heavily, heavily fined. There is no freedom. Transgender bathrooms. I want to be very careful with this because I realize that in this 
identity crisis, and that is what it is. There is a blindness and a deception that has taken place. And our goal is not to focus and condemn as much as it is to give them hope that there is, there is an identity that Christ, that God created you with. And for many reasons, that has been confused in them. I would not want to enact laws that would facilitate that confusion, but heal that confusion and help. And to say that it's fine for transgenders to occupy restrooms of their biologically opposite sex is not the answer. The Democratic platform supports transgender bathrooms. I'm, for you, that, that might seem like a, a picky topic. I, I'm sharing it with you because not only is it purposely part of the Democratic platform, and so they're the ones, if anything, has, have chosen to be picky on this, but this is a reflection of the heart of America. That, we, that our thinking has become so futile and we have so rejected God's word. What else is our moral compass? What else guides us in what is right and wrong, church? There's only one. It's personal opinion. That's what we are left with, personal opinion. So whoever expresses their personal opinion the strongest than Okay, number five, terrorism and the use or non-use of the word Islam. We all know that the vast majority of terrorism is sponsored by radical Islam, but that is not politically correct. I'm not saying that the common Muslim holds to a, to a, uh, a physical jihad. Many of them hold to a spiritual jihad. I understand this. However, that is not what the Quran teaches. The Quran does teach both. Muhammad himself did kill people at sword point if they did not convert. And so I would just simply say terrorism is what it is. It is birthed for the most part out of a religious view that is in conflict with God's word, the Bible. For us to lower our immigration laws to allow them to now come into America is unthinkable. Right now is not the time to lax our immigration laws, point number six, to open the doors to potential terrorists. There is an answer concerning immigration. I'm not sure that Trump has discovered the right answer, but there is a right answer. I'm not saying just open the doors to whomever, but the truth is many people do come into America and they immediately go on welfare. That's not the answer. And then lastly, welfare itself. And the democratic platform, of course, not being a godly platform, rejecting the Bible, does not go by what the Bible has to say concerning welfare. 
I am all in favor of welfare. Just not state-sponsored welfare. And if you were to search through the scriptures, and this is what our founding fathers did, and they rejected state-sponsored welfare for this reason. This reason. Helping the poor, either lending to them or giving to them, is throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are commanded by God's word to help the less fortunate. Those with more money, you should give, not to make finances equal, but those who are wealthy, God has entrusted you with something. Be generous in your gifting. Every single one of you here, is, God has blessed phenomenally, and we should seek to be generous. The question, though, is who does God say? What is God's answer to the poor? And it is this. There are five jurisdictions that the Bible speaks to. We call them government or personal governing or authority jurisdiction. Number one, personal jurisdiction or personal governing. God tells you individually, help the poor. There is family governance. As families, we seek to help other families who are less fortunate. And, and the Bible has scripture passages for this. There is, there is business governance or business jurisdiction. And in the Old Testament, we have the, the gleaning laws in which if you had a business, you had to leave the corners of your fields unreaped so the poor could, could reap. So you had to leave behind. Uh, so you couldn't go back and, and re, uh, regather your wheat. You had to leave it for the poor. This is a command given to, to businesses. As we move into the New Testament, into the church age, what we find are very specific challenges and commands to the church, church governance, church jurisdiction, to help the poor. And of all of these jurisdictions and of all of these commandments throughout the Old and New Testament, there is not one command, not one command that God gave to the princes and to the rulers or to the state governing authorities, help the poor. In, in by giving them money. Legislate justice. That's your job. And so when it comes to welfare, the Democratic platform has taken the Bible and said, forget about what the Bible has to say. Forget about what the founding fathers who trusted in this book believed because they did not want state-sponsored welfare. Let's just create our own ideas of how to answer this problem because let me tell you this, when you... When you give free money, you just bought a vote. Sorry if that's just too raw for you, but that's just the way, that's the way politics run in America. Let me buy your vote for you. I'll give you free money. That is not the answer. Was it Washington Carver, after slavery was ended, he spoke to the black people and he said, never, never take handouts from people because if you do, you'll become their slaves again. Washington Carver was a black man. I don't trust who, so anyway, let me, let, me, let me say this. So when I go and I vote, I'm not gonna vote for who I think is the most godly person. I'm not. I'm gonna vote for the person that I think is gonna represent my views the best. And it would not be casting my vote for the Democratic platform. But as a church, 
as God's people, we don't trust in man, we don't trust in princes, and we don't trust in presidents. We don't trust for who we put into the Senate or the House or the judiciary. We don't trust in them to bring about the change that we desperately need. The change that we desperately need is the change of the heart. And I'm going to encourage you now, church, do not give up as you seek to reach out to the lost. And, and as in all of your efforts and, and maybe discouragements that you have encountered, we cannot afford ever to give up. The enemy has blinded the minds of those who are lost, and he's captured their hearts, just like he had mine. And we cannot give up praying for them and loving them and sharing Jesus with them and showing them that Jesus Christ and he alone is the answer. Can you stand with me? Father, we cry out to you in this very desperate hour we want to vote right. We do, God. There's a number of people and, and such that we need to be voting for and amendments. We want to vote with your wisdom. Give us wisdom. But Lord, ultimately, we realize even though we want godly men and women leading this nation, they will not be able to in and of themselves lead this nation into revival or righteousness. God, I am asking that your spirit move through your church and that, Father, where we have allowed the enemy to blind our minds and, and distort our thinking and that we begin to think and, and, and just, we begin to act and speak the very way the world does. God, would you forgive us? We need a breakthrough of your spirit in our own hearts and in this day, in this generation, in this nation, God, bring revival, bring a move of your spirit, God. Your word says that if my people are, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God. In America, we need our land healed. We need our nation healed. All the divisions, we need to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God, help us. God, help us as we pray. God, help us as we vote. We need you, Jesus, above all else. In Christ's name.